praise the name of the Lord our God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're going to bring Mark's gospel to a resolution today. We're going to conclude the gospel of Mark in a sermon I've titled, Dead, Buried, Raised, Go. Dead, Buried, Raised, Go. If you join me in reading God's word, beginning in verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When Sabbath was over, this is the beginning of chapter 16, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Would you pray with me? God, help us to understand this text this morning, and more than to understand it, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would do as you have promised, that you would use the preaching of the Word and the hearing of the Word to operate in the hearts and the lives and the minds and the souls of men and women this morning. God, if there's anyone here who knows the facts of the gospel, but they don't yet know the person of Jesus Christ, would today be the day that you rescue another soul? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we consider the truth that there is a way to overcome death, that death has been overcome in Christ. If Christ is raised from the dead, there's a God. Jesus is that God. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are real. 
And Jesus makes all the difference in whether you spend eternity in one or the other. If the resurrection is true, all of those facts are true. So this morning we consider, is Christ really raised from the dead? Tim Keller puts it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept what he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The Apostle Paul said something similar. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or useless, and you are still in your sins. But praise God, Christ is raised. And the evidence is abundantly clear. Wolfhart Pannenberg, a philosopher, said this, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe that it happened, you must change the way that you live. That's the problem, folks, with the resurrection of Christ. It's not that it's not well attested in history. It's more attested in ancient historical documents than any of the other ancient history that we accept as de facto truth. The problem is, if Christ is raised, it has an implication for our lives that is of eternal consequence. If the resurrection is true, death is defeated in Jesus and life everlasting is available in Him and in Him alone. There's no other remedy for what faces every man, woman, boy, and girl. Death, the remedy is Christ and Christ alone. Trusting in Jesus brings everlasting life and rejecting Jesus brings everlasting condemnation. If the resurrection is true, then that means this morning Jesus has the power to forgive you of your sins. If the resurrection is true, it means that Jesus has the power to heal and restore broken marriages. If the resurrection is true, Jesus has the power to mend broken hearts and renew corrupted minds and to save sinners and give them true life. What Mark wants us to know this morning, most assuredly, is that Jesus really died. He was really buried. He is really raised. And we can find life in First, we must see that Jesus physically died on the cross. It should go without saying that for Christ to be raised from the dead, he really had to die. But for some, they realize the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is so strong that they do not attack the resurrection, they attack his death. They can't disprove his resurrection. It's so well attested historically. They go, well, this guy surely didn't die. But his death is confirmed by the Roman centurion in verse 39 when he sees Jesus breathe his last. A man who no doubt had seen many crucifixions confirms that he's dead. Then in verses 41 and 42, his death is confirmed by three women who are looking on. These women are women who knew Jesus. They didn't just show up at the last moment. Mark tells us that they followed him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Mary Magdalene knew the power of Jesus. He had delivered her from demonic possession. The second Mary, likely the mother of Jesus, is there, and another woman also named Salome. These are three women who are named so that Mark tells us, look, you know who these women are. They were there at the cross and saw Jesus died. In addition, there were many other women. Do you see that in verse 41? These are the women mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, who were with Jesus during His public ministry, providing financial and, and other types of support to Jesus and the disciples. The words looking on 
and from a distance there in verses 40 and 41 indicate that the women see Jesus on the cross, but they, their sight is not the sort of seeing yet that leads to spiritual understanding. They're there, but they're at a distance. Once again, Scripture is fulfilled. Psalm 38, 11 says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. The women could have no doubt followed Jesus even more closely, but we should remember where the disciples are at this time. They fled the scene entirely. The women who knew Jesus well know well that Jesus is dead. We should also know and have confidence that Jesus died because of the courage of Joseph of Arimathea who asked Pilate for Jesus' body. Why do you ask someone to have a body? Because the body is dead. Pilate in Rome would have let Jesus rot on the cross for days as they did with many criminals as a warning to others about the consequences of their criminality. But Jewish law requires that even criminals hung on a tree must be buried. And Sabbath is quickly approaching. It's the day of preparation, Mark tells us. Which means for Jesus to be buried according to the law, somebody's got to move quickly. But Jesus has been abandoned all around. And then there's this man named Joseph. And even though he's a member of the council, that is the religious ruling leadership, the Sanhedrin... We learn in Luke's gospel that he did not agree with the decision to execute Jesus. We read here in Mark's gospel, verse 43, that he's waiting for the kingdom of God. Jesus, who predicted in chapter 9, verse 1 of Mark, that you will see the kingdom of God coming in power, is about ready to prove that in his resurrection. And here's Joseph. He he believes that there's something real about this man, Jesus. In fact, John chapter 19, verse 38 says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And therefore he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Joseph's request confirms that Jesus was dead. Pilate also wonders if Jesus is dead because sometimes people would last on the cross of crucifixion for for days. So he summons the man who would know if Jesus was dead or not. He calls the centurion who already saw Jesus breathe his last. He summons the centurion. Hey, Mr. Centurion, Mr. Overseer of the crucifixion, is it true that Jesus is dead? And the centurion again confirms that Jesus is dead. In John 19 verse 34, we get this added detail that a soldier pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out of his side. Which, as any good doctor would tell you, means that Jesus was dead. The women who followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem confirm that Jesus is dead. Joseph asks for his body because he knows that he's dead. The centurion confirms that he's dead. Pilate believes the centurion that Jesus is dead. Any good doctor would tell you that blood and water flowing out of a pierced side of a man means that he is dead. And just in case we doubted that Jesus was really dead, in verse 45, Mark adds this grotesque language that Pilate gave, not the body, but the Greek literally says, the corpse to Jesus. Jesus really died on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, died not of old age, not by accident, but on the cross to pay the price of death for our sin, just as God promised, which means, church, there's a remedy for your sin today. 
There's hope for you today. The sin that so traps you and weighs you down, it's canceled in the death of Christ. And when we run to Jesus, sin loses its grip and its power because he died. And on Saturday, Holy Saturday, he went and descended to the place of the dead to rip the jaws and the teeth out of sin and hell and the grave so that you could live for him. He really died. But secondly, we must see that Jesus was buried in a known location because some would say, well, of course Jesus died on the cross, but maybe they provided a substitute Savior for Jesus. Maybe they didn't actually see Jesus risen. They saw some other guy risen. In verse 46, Joseph purchases a linen cloth in which to wrap Jesus' body for burial. Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph was a rich man, which fulfills yet another prophecy of Scripture from Isaiah 53.9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now some people will tell you that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories, but the problem with that idea is that the disciples who run away in fear and doubt will suddenly, miraculously, be running all over the globe telling people about a guy that they ran away from in his crucifixion because they saw that he was raised. Uh, another reason this theory doesn't hold any water is because of the global spread of the gospel almost instantaneously in all around 35 AD. How does that happen? How does it happen that a, a, a religion and a faith that has not been known suddenly explodes around the world? Unlike, by the way, any other world religion. You go to college, you go to comparative religions class, and they'll tell you the Bible and Christianity is just like any other faith. What a bunch of hooey. Hinduism is isolated ethnically and linguistically. Islam predominantly, has been isolated ethnically and linguistically. Go find any other faith that they want to tell you Christianity is just one of a bunch of other faiths. That's a bunch of hooey. Christianity is the only faith that they said there was a man who died and he is now raised. And because that's true, I'm going to learn a new language. I'm going to go risk my life among a people I do not even know. And suddenly the gospel's in Ethiopia and it's in Spain and it's all over the world. Why? Because they serve a king who came for all people who is raised from the dead. And here's another important fact. Jesus' burial is consistent with all the other burials in that area and in that day. If you're making up a story about Jesus and you don't know the facts, then you're going to bungle the burial. But Mark doesn't bungle the burial. Edwards tells us burial caves were sealed by large disc-shaped stones right there in the text that were rolled in channels in front of the opening. Why? To keep out animals and grave robbers. The idea that Mark gets it right about Pilate and who the leaders are and how Jesus is buried, but oh, he just happens to be mistaken that Jesus was buried, is preposterous. The only reason you would say that is if you don't want to be accountable to Jesus, who is raised and ruling in righteousness. We know that Jesus is buried for a lot of good reasons that I've already explained, but perhaps one of the best reasons is because two of the three women who are named in verse 40 are named again in verse 47 as those who are looking on. The same women that followed Jesus from Galilee now follow Him to the tomb. 
If Mark had been inventing this story, he would have put all three women there. But he's honest. It was just two of the three. And actually, if we're quite candid about this, Mark would not have put women at the tomb at all. Because women's testimony in Jewish law was invalid. Their eyewitness testimony held no water in the court of law, and it didn't have much more credence in Roman culture as well. But here, once again, God has taken the things that our world rejects, and He uses them to bring even greater confirmation to our hearts that the Jesus who died on the cross is the Jesus who was buried in the tomb. And we know that we can know this is true, and because we know that this is true, we know that God raised Jesus from the dead. Not an alternate Jesus, not a substitute Jesus, not a Jesus that didn't die. The Jesus of Nazareth is who God raised from the dead. When Sabbath is over, the women purchase spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now we can mention many evidences of the resurrection, but I submit to you this morning, church, it's difficult to beat three women on a mission. There's... There's, there's, there's no greater evidence, I think, that we can adduce for the resurrection than there are three men on a mission, amen? I mean, men could have messed this up. This is before GPS, and men do not ask directions. It's a fact. But women do ask for directions, and they don't forget where they've been the day before. So very early on Sunday morning, but not before the sun has risen, Mark told it, tells us, aren't you glad that Mark says sunrise is very early. That, that makes me feel good because I am not a morning person. And these people that get up and go to the gym at 4.30, I went to the gym at 4.30 this morning. Well, good for you, <laughs> sinner. I mean, golly. Why does he tell us it's sunrise? Because they see where they're going. They aren't mistaken. They know full well they're at the right tomb. The women know where they're going. They go at daybreak with no opportunity for darkness to confuse them. They have a very natural question for people expecting that Jesus is dead. Who's going to move that stone away? In verse 4, church, everything changes. The women who looked on as Jesus died and then looked on as they laid Him in the tomb, now they look up, which is a term biblically that always means something good's about to happen. They look up and what do they see? They see that the extremely large stone had been passive voice, had been rolled away. Mark leaves it open to us who rolled it away, but he's using the divine passive, which means God is the actor in the sentence. In Matthew the earthquake and the angel roll the stone away. But Mark takes us back a step further. Who sent the earthquake? God did. Who sent the angel? God did. Who rolled the stone away? God rolled the stone away. And as the women enter the tomb in verse 5, a young man wearing a white robe, certainly an angel, tells them to stop being amazed. The word means fear, astonishment, or distress. It's the same word that describes Jesus' agony. When he faces the wrath of God in the garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. The women, why are they distressed at such good news? Why does the resurrection of Jesus bring distress when it's supposed to bring such hope? For the same reason I believe, church, that the resurrection of Jesus is something that many people today still try to avoid. 
The, the word looking for in verse 6 means trying to contain or to limit someone. The religious leaders had been looking for Jesus when they were trying to arrest Him and crucify Him. The crowds were looking for Jesus when they wanted to keep Him nearby and treat Him kind of like a genie in a bottle. But church, Jesus did not come to be limited to your agenda. Jesus did not come to be limited by your ambition. He did not come to be limited to your definition of a good life. He came to give you life everlasting. He gives you a new life and a new agenda. You see, a dead teacher can be contained by our preferences. A dead teacher can be reinterpreted based on changing times and cultures. But a real risen Savior stands over it all and that changes everything. He is Lord. He is God. He defines right and wrong in every time and in every generation. He does not change. His standard does not change. He is Lord and judge of all. And that is a dreadful, terrifying thought until you really hear the gospel. The good news that Jesus was raised for you. He was not raised to condemn. He was raised to save. I love that the gospel is preached first from an empty tomb. The angel says, The Jesus that you know, the Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is once for all crucified and was laying right here, He's not here anymore. Why? Verse 6, He was raised. Once again, Mark wants us to know it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. Peter proclaims it in Acts 2.24. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Jesus to be held in its power. Jesus died to conquer death and death could not hold him. And for those who run to Jesus, death will neither hold you as well. Verse 6 is wonderful news. The women are commanded to go and tell the disciples in verse 7, Matthew tells us that they run away in fear and in joy, but Mark focuses on their fear in verse 8. The women leave the scene, but they leave still blinded by their fear. In fact, the earliest versions of Mark's gospel end in verse 8. The rest of the story is, is left hanging. Mark's abrupt ending is intentional, by the way. He wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus is true, but knowing Jesus is more than just piling up the facts and saying, well, yep, he's risen, that's good. And it's even more than a mere theological exercise. You see, the women have all the facts they need, and yet in verse 8, they run away saying nothing to nobody. Having the right facts and the right theology is important, church, but it's not enough. Quoting the Apostles' Creed for your entire life every Sunday will not save you. You must encounter the risen Christ. What the women need and what we need this morning, what I dare say some of you need this morning is not a lecture that tells you Jesus was really, die, really died, that He was really buried and He's really raised. You need what happens to the women next. You need to encounter the risen Lord this morning. And that still happens when the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and convinces you of the truth of the gospel and shows you your need for Jesus. We must encounter the risen Christ and courageously tell others to trust in Jesus 
the son and returning king. As Edwards writes, it is not enough, excuse me, it is encountering the risen Lord, not the empty tomb that produces faith. God gives us more than facts. He gives us more than systems and words and traditions and rituals. God gives us himself. The women depart in fear without saying a word. But as they fearfully make their way to the disciples, Matthew's gospel tells us that they meet Jesus. And what do they do when they see the risen King of kings and Lord of lords? They fall down at His feet and they grab His feet and they worship Him. The goal of the gospel and of the good news that Christ is risen is that we would worship God. And to worship God, we must worship Christ, the risen King. The women who departed in fear now worship And then they go and tell the disciples as the angel had commanded them. This is what happens when we really encounter the risen Christ. We worship and then we go tell the good news. Paul tells us in Romans 4 verse 25 that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Do you know what that means church? Because Christ is risen, your sins can be forgiven. Because Christ is risen, if you'll trust Him today, no matter what you've said or done or thought in, your, in the entirety of your life, if you will trust in Christ, the risen King of kings and Lord of lords, when God looks at you, He will see not your sin, but the blood of His Christ, and He will count you instantaneously as just before a holy God. Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55 tell us that the resurrection means we are no longer held in bondage by the fear of death. Some of you this morning are terrified to die. You are absolutely terrified at the thought of death. And you should be. Because you've not yet given your life to the one who gives life everlasting beyond the grave. The resurrection means that if you'll surrender your life to Christ, that though you will physically die one day when He returns again, you will be raised bodily to worship and adore Christ the risen King forever and for always. The resurrection means we can have everlasting life. Jesus promises, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. The resurrection also means we have a reason And a power to live as Jesus commands, to go and to tell others. But the resurrection also means that God is a returning judge. Acts 17 verse 31 says, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance by raising Him from the dead. How can you have assurance that when the judge returns, that you'll get to be with Christ the King? You've got to encounter Christ the risen King through the eyes of faith this morning. There's no good reason to doubt the resurrection, but facts are not enough. What you need is to encounter the risen Christ. And my prayer for you this week has been that the Holy Spirit would perform a miracle that's no less miraculous this morning than the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That the same Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead would resurrect dead hearts this morning and make them alive to the purposes of God. Romans chapter 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is not merely a matter of the head. 
I've known people who could quote vast portions of the Bible, but their hearts were harder and heavier than the stone that sealed Jesus' tomb. It is not faith in facts that saves you this morning. It is faith in and surrender to Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God and King who died to take your place. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 tells us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in those who trust in Christ. This morning, if you have been trusting in anything less than Christ the risen King, if you've been trusting in your good deeds, if you've been trusting in your accomplishments, your educational attainment, your career achievement, how much you give, your church traditions, your knowledge of Scripture, may today be the day that though you've been departing in fear, you encounter Christ on the way and you bow at His feet and you worship and say, I give you my life and I go in Jesus' name. The Spirit of God this morning invites you to encounter Christ, the risen King. Would you stand with me as we sing? God, we love you. We are so thankful for the resurrection this morning. We are thankful that these bodies that you gave us, though they may perish if you tarry, God, you will raise them up. We sense, we yearn, we long for eternity. God, you've placed within the heart of man a desire to persist. And the only thing worth living for and persisting for is Christ, our risen King. God, we thank you that's possible through faith in Jesus. And we ask that as we sing, that if there's anyone here who's like those women, they've been all around Jesus, but they still needed to encounter Christ, that God, today would be the day that they have the boldness, the courage to put their lives in your hands. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.